Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Now, this is the last regular episode before we head into the summer months. So for June, July, and August, I've got some plans to try some different things. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Should be fun. I'm going to try to branch out a little bit, maybe have some different conversations than uh, the usual ones. Uh, so like I said, I'm not quite sure where we're going yet, but uh, stay tuned uh, as things unfold. Uh, upcoming events uh, to remind you of uh, the, both this spring and into the fall. Uh, first, this week, we've got the big conference in Las Vegas, the Assessment Center Institute. That'll be Wednesday through Friday, May 24th through 26th, uh, again happening this week. Uh, into the fall now, we've got the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training. That'll be in Jonesboro, Arkansas, September 25th and 26th, Charleston, South Carolina, October 11th and 12th, and St. Louis, Missouri, December 6th and 7th. And just a reminder that the St. Louis event will be facilitated by a Solution Tree associate, Natalie Bartabasso. Uh, Standards-based learning in action, that two-day training is going to be in Seattle, Washington, October 16th and 17th. I have links in the show notes for all of those events, should they be of interest to you. Also, one more reminder that uh, my new book, Redefining Student Accountability, is finally out. Um, and I have to say, I'm really excited about this book. Um, it's my first solo book since Grading from the Inside Out, which was published in 2016. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, hoping that uh, you'll enjoy that book, should that be of interest to you. A reminder, it's about the separation of achievement grades and behavioral uh, attributes or characteristics and how we go about the business of actually teaching kids to be more responsible, more accountable, more respectful, etc. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is once again, Dylan William. This will be part two of my interview with Dylan about all things assessment. So really excited about that. And in Assessment Corner, I want to talk about this fake war in grading reform that some seem to want to manufacture. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Part two of my conversation with Dylan William is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with some thoughts about failure. Now, first, a little bit of the backstory. Several weeks back, the Milwaukee Bucks were eliminated from the NBA playoffs by the Miami Heat. Now, Milwaukee was not only the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, they had the best record in the NBA at 58-24. and 24. Now, arguably, Milwaukee has the best player in the NBA, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And they were certainly poised to make a deep run in the playoffs. I mean, maybe not a championship, but they were poised to make a deep run. But guess what? That didn't happen. Miami defeated the Bucks in only five games, and that marked one of the biggest upsets in NBA playoff history. So, of course, as the star player, there are going to be a lot of questions from the media and from the fans in the aftermath of such an upset. And Antetokounmpo is, you know, at the press conference and answering a lot of questions. And one of the reporters asks him, do you view this season as a failure? And Giannis sighs from the table and says, oh, my God. Now, while saying that, he looks visibly annoyed at the question. And then he answers the question. He says, quote, Michael Jordan played 15 years. He won six championships. Does that mean the other nine years were a failure? Is that what you're telling me? I'm asking you a question, yes or no, were those other nine years a failure? End quote. Now the reporter replied, no. So Giannis responded, exactly, he said. 
So why do you ask me that question? It's the wrong question. There's no failure in sports. There are good days. There are bad days. Some days you're able to be successful and some days you're not. Some days it's your turn and some days it's not your turn. That's what sports is about. You don't always win, end quote. Now, when it comes to professional sports, that's not really going to be a very popular answer. You just need to ask Toronto Maple Leaf fans about how they feel about there is no such thing as failure. But I'm not sure what's happened to us, though it's probably social media. But we've landed in this era where fans and others have this championship or failure mindset. You either win or you're a complete failure. We love to put that pressure on others, right? We want our professional athletes, our idols, to be obsessed with winning. But as Giannis said, you don't always win. There are 30 teams in the NBA. There will only be one champion, which means 29 teams will not win a championship. There are 30 teams in Major League Baseball. Only one champion, which means 29 will not. There's 32 teams in the NHL. There'll be one champion, which means 31 teams will not win a championship. In the NFL, there's 32 teams, one champion. That means 31 teams will not win. In those four major sports, there are 124 teams and only four winners. So are we really saying that 120 teams failed? I think we've lost our collective minds, and more importantly, we've lost perspective on this. I'd like to see this standard applied to the lives of anyone else, especially those making this assertion. I'd like to see if you bring it each year and quote-unquote win a championship in your respective fields. You know, the elementary school teacher who applied for a grade 5 position but didn't get it. Is that person a complete failure? The high school teacher who applied to be an instructional coach but was turned down, didn't get the job. Total failure. The teacher who applied to be an assistant principal got shortlisted, was interviewed, but didn't get it. What an absolute failure. Shall I go on? Does that sound right? Now, I know people pay their hard-earned money to watch professional sports, and the athletes in the sports make an insane amount of money. But you paying to watch your team doesn't guarantee you a championship. What has happened to us? The idea that championships are all that count, that there's no such thing as success if you don't win a championship. Honestly, when it comes to dumb arguments, just look at sports. Look, for, look to sports, look to professional sports and fans for some of the dumbest arguments. They're usually just arguments to justify their own positions, especially if they're ones that we want to assert or ones that we believe in. Like, for example, the conversation about who is the greatest basketball player of all time is they call the, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Michael Jordan is considered the GOAT by most in the NBA because he's 6-0 in the NBA Finals. And so people often talk about the fact that he's undefeated in the finals, but he only went six times. He never made the finals nine years, right? So Bill Russell was 11-1 and one in the finals. So he went to 12, but lost once. So going to fewer finals and never losing is better than going to twice as many? Hmm. Okay, I got it. So undefeated is the standard then, right? So if that's what we're saying, if going to fewer finals, but being undefeated makes Michael Jordan the GOAT, then let's apply that to a different sport. Let's say football. Um, if we apply that standard to football, that means Terry Bradshaw and Joe Montana are the greatest quarterbacks of all time because they both are 4-0 in the Super Bowl. Now people will say to me, no, Tom, that's Tom Brady. Why is it Tom Brady? Well, he won seven Super Bowls. But wait, he lost three 
So undefeated isn't the standard when it comes to football, but it is the standard when it comes to basketball. Okay, got it. You see what I mean about dumb arguments? Just look to how fans argue their positions in professional sports and you will find easily some dumb arguments. Now, do we do this to our students? Like as teachers or parents, do we do this? I really think we need a collective mindset reset on what it means to be a failure. If Giannis were a student, would we put he and the Bucks in remedial basketball league immediately because they didn't max out? They didn't win the championship? Imagine taking a deficit approach and saying, well, clearly the Bucks aren't NBA players. We need to put them in a league that is more suited to their abilities. That sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? But think of how many times we've talked about students like that in some schools. Right? The minute there is a less than desirable outcome, it's redirect, reprogram, lower expectations and things like that. Sometimes that's the right call, but sometimes we're a little too quick to lower expectations rather than surround them with the support that's necessary to reach excellence. Now, I get the difference between a world-class athlete, professional athletes, and students in school. I get that. Should Giannis and his teammates be disappointed? Yes, they should. They had the best record in the NBA, and they fell short. Should the fans feel a little disappointed in the early exit from the playoffs? Absolutely. But to characterize the season as a complete failure is, to me, a little bit ridiculous. Sure, in the hot take world of social media and sports talk radio, maybe you do that, but it's, it is a ridiculous standard that could never be fulfilled by anyone else in society. You can have a phenomenal career, never get a promotion every, you know, or not win teacher of the year or, or anything like that, you know, for teacher, for places that have that kind of silly stuff. But, you know, you can have this phenomenal career, not get a promotion every year, not win teacher of the year and still have a great career. We have to stop instilling this all or nothing mentality because the odds are against you winning every single year. Again, whatever that means in your context but it's going to do nothing but contribute to our collective mental erosion. I'm not saying we should strive for mediocrity. We have to strive for excellence. Do everything possible to get there. And then you just have to live with the results and everything that was within your control, just look at it and say, listen, I did the best I could given the situation. I mean, it makes for a great soundbite, the idea that it was a complete failure. But it really is an unhealthy way to look at failure in whatever endeavor we are involved in. Strive for excellence. Yes, be the best. Try to be the best. But understand that in a 30-year career, there are going to be ups and downs. The premise of the reporter's question was intentionally provocative, of course, right? So Giannis says, yes, it was a complete failure. It makes for a great headline. If Giannis says no, then of course it makes for a great headline. Like I said, I, th I think we need a collective reset on how we view failure in our society. You don't always win. You don't always get the promotion. Students don't always get it right the first time. Graduates don't always get into their first choice university. That's life. And we have to learn to accept that in all walks of life, including this fantasy world of professional sports. That there isn't this constant binary choice between epic success and disastrous failure. There is also the journey. There is also the learning. There is also the growing. There's the regrouping, the relearning, the reinvigoration that leads to eventual success. As that old expression goes, there is no such thing as failure. You're either succeeding 
or your learning. This week, uh, looking forward to our conversation and listeners, if you haven't listened to last week's conversation, would really encourage you to to go back and listen to part one of this conversation. Not necessary. There'll be two different conversations, but certainly so many great nuggets and, and insights shared by Dylan last week. But Dylan, as we begin part two this week, I want to begin by digging into specific practices and strategies and start. I want to start with feedback. In particular, I want to point to a chapter you wrote in the Cambridge Handbook on Instructional Feedback in 2018. In that chapter, you wrote something about one of the most important nuances when it comes to feedback. And I've really picked up on that with my work because I think sometimes we oversimplify the impact of feedback and how it's just this idea that, oh, I, I'm going to give feedback in absence of a grade and we're going to have this learning explosion. And I don't think it's that simple. And I think you would concur with what you wrote. And and what you really wrote about was that feedback doesn't always work and that there is a difference potentially in the effectiveness of feedback that is focused more on per improving performance on a task or an assignment versus feedback that is targeting the learner and the idea of impacting their long-term learning. So can you talk a little bit more about that nuance about why is it that feedback doesn't always work and what do we really need to drill down and focus on when it comes to feedback being effective for classroom teachers and also effective for students advancing their learning? I should begin by saying that that chapter, I was invited to contribute to that handbook and I really didn't want to write it. I didn't think I had anything more to say about feedback. But somebody twisted my arm, Jeff and Anna Libnevich, um, Jeff Smith and Anna Libnevich, twisted my arm and I said, you've got to do it. And so it's like one of those things that I think Michel Foucault said, I write in order to change myself and not <laughs> to think the same as I thought before. So I think was, that was a good example of the writing, actually. You know, I had no idea what I was going to write. I didn't think I had anything to say. And eventually I came up with a chapter that people seem to like. So. Mm -hmm. I think the crucial thing here is this distinction that psychologists make between learning and performance. Mm -hmm. So performance is how well you complete a task, an instructional task, and learning is the changes in long-term memory that, that occur as a result. And what concerns me is that oftentimes teachers give feedback that is intended to improve the work the student hands in. You know, these are the ones you got wrong, do your corrections. Or often the teacher does the corrections for the student, tells the student what to do to improve the work. The student does it, the work is now improved. The student may even get a better grade, but the student's ability to do better work in the future hasn't been affected because the teacher did all the intellectual heavy lifting. I see this being underscored with things like rubrics. Hmm. Rubrics tell the students what they need to do to get an A. And if the rubric is too precise, it will actually enable the student to get an A without understanding any of the stuff that they're doing. They're just jumping through the hoops. And there's an inevitable pressure here because students say, well, tell me what I need to do. And it's not very uh, supportive to say, well, if I have to tell you what to do, you won't know, you know, it, it'll, it'll spoil the activity. You need to figure it out for yourself. So th th there's a, a push towards transparency. Why did you give me an A? Why do you give me a B? Why do you give me a C? And so rubrics support that but I think they undermine learning very often because they improve the work, but don't necessarily improve the work, improve the thinking of the student that produced the work. Right. And so I, I think that that I think is a kind of concrete suggestion. And it comes from 
the fact that people are still obsessing about what's the effect size of feedback. So we've seen people like John Hattie in his visible learning program trying to work out, you know, well, is the effect of feedback 0.4 as Valerie Shute claims or 0.8 as John Hattie claims? I'm saying those are stupid questions. Because if you improve student achievement by telling them what to do, you'll get a huge effect size, but they won't learn anything. Six weeks later, it'll be completely ineffective. And so there's an important review of research by Kluger and Denisi, published in 1996, that looked at the research on feedback and they calculated an average effect size of 0.4. And then they said, we don't think this is relevant. Because if the feedback has its effect by making the students more dependent on feedback, that's not a positive. And so we should change our focus to what are the long-term effects. And the other thing I think that's changed about feedback research is a recognition that we need to do it for the long-term. By one estimate by Maria Ruiz Primo and Min Lee, mm -hmm. 75% of the published studies on feedback are done by psychology professors on their own students. Where the feedback event is a single transaction taking minutes. Students are invited into the lab, tested, given feedback, tested again, and dismissed. I don't think that has anything to tell us about learning. It tells us only about performance. And so I think that most of the research on feedback is unhelpful because it actually focuses on changes in performance rather than in long-term learning. This, would be, this is a particular worry because we now know from the work of people like Robert Bjork uh, that actually things that improve performance often have a negative effect on learning and things that make performance worse can often have a positive effect on learning. So for example, um, doing a mixed batch of uh, problems, not 10 problems of the same sort, but 10 different sorts of problems, actually is much harder for students. Their performance is degraded because they can't get into the hang of doing one kind of problem and just doing it 10 times. So doing things, what it was called interleave practice, doing chopping and changing every problem is a different kind, actually makes students' performance look worse because they'd never get into a, a rhythm doing it, but it results in better long-term learning. So there's a quite a long-standing finding from the, the memory research that shows that, that manipulations that make the performance in the task worse often make the long-term learning better. Yeah. And so I think that's the real problem with feedback research is that we've, we've, we've prioritized short-term gains where we get huge effect sizes and that completely distorts the whole field of research. The second thing that I think is really important about feedback research recently is people have focused on less on what the feedback is. Should it be immediate? Should it be delayed? Should it be supportive? Should it be critical? And more on what does the student do with it? what researchers call recipients' processes. There's a very nice example of that from David Yeager, a former colleague of Carol Dweck's, I think is at the University of Texas at Austin now. And he just did a nice experiment with his colleagues where half the students were told why they were given, being given feedback. I'm giving you this feedback because I have very high expectations and I know you can reach them. The other students in the experiment were just told, I've made some comments so you have feedback on your paper. Students were invited to resubmit. Where the students had had the more positive post-it note, the African-American students in the sample were four times as likely to resubmit the work 
just a change in a post-it note. So that suggests there's a lot we can do to improve the take up of feedback by getting students to understand, I'm giving you this feedback because I care about you. <laughs> I want you to get smarter. I believe you can get smarter. This feedback is designed to do that. And I think that's what we're learning now is, let's not put our energies into making the feedback perfect. Let's make the relationships between us and our students so that the students act on the feedback that they're given to move their learning forward. Yeah, the the um, the Kluger and Denisi uh, research from 1996 is is jarring in a way when I, I think and you articulated that in your book Embedded Formative Assessment this idea that there are eight potential responses that students could have and six of them are negative, you know that you can either change your aspiration or change your effort. Those are the only positive responses that kids can have to to our feedback. It is jarring, but important. And I can tell you that as somebody who is greatly impacted by that chapter you wrote, it has caused me to talk about feedback in a way that I ask this question of teachers all the time. Is your feedback a set of directions or does your feedback cause thinking? Yeah. And that translates into the idea of building a rubric, that a rubric, for me, the most effective rubrics are the ones that describe quality. They don't prescribe output. They're not a set of directions. They're not an answer key, but they describe a, a kind of a gradation of quality that the students then have to think about and manifest. Would you subscribe to that That being yeah. maybe the more effective way to create criteria? I mean, absolutely. And if we think yeah. about the, the, the important nexus between feedback and self-regulated learning, as psychologists call it. For yeah. me, the, the rubric should be telling the student, am I on the right track? Right. The student should be able to refer to the rubric and just say, am I, you know, not here's what you do next, because that's definitely going to improve the work, but not improve the learner. But I think the rubric can be helpful in reassuring the student, you know, you're on the right track, or actually you've forgotten an important element that you need to do to support your argument in this, right. in this history essay, for example. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting conversation. I try to say it somewhat provocatively when I say to teachers, hey, when it comes to feedback, focus on the learning. And they look at you kind of sideways yeah. and think, uh, great, great idea, Tom. Never thought of that in my 20 years of teaching. But then I get into the nuances of, of basically what you wrote about. And that, that is that idea that you can actually improve the quality of the task, but not impact their long-term learning. And I think that is a nuance that so often gets lost. And I, I mentioned this before, you know, I think it last it, last week in, in part one, this idea of, of the, the oversimplification of the way we talk about feedback on social media and in blog posts, it's this definitiveness and there's so much nuance to it and so much we have to pay attention to that. I, I, I certainly really appreciated that chapter. So if for, for, as one person anyway, I can tell you, I'm thankful you wrote that chapter because even though you didn't want to write it, it had a tremendous impact on me for sure. Now, the other thing I notice about feedback, I want to stay with this thread for a while. I noticed that a lot of teachers, and this is for all the right reasons. So this isn't a criticism, but I think we have to critique this a little bit. I think a lot of times teachers are guilty of giving kids too much feedback, yeah. especially in proportion to the amount of time they're prepared to give kids to act upon the feedback. I, I think I've heard you say many times that any feedback you provide students that they can't act upon is useless feedback. I think that's something I've heard you say before and many mm -hmm. others. So this leads teachers to feeling overwhelmed. Uh, when we think about feedback, it's like, Tom, I know feedback is important, but where do I find the time? So they're frustrated that students aren't acting upon the feedback. So I guess my question to you is what would be some efficient ways for teachers to give feedback that doesn't compromise the effectiveness for students, right? So how do we create efficient routines for teachers, but effectiveness for students in terms of our feedback routines that don't leave teachers feeling burnt out, but also leave students on that trajectory of learning? Well, we have to take about four steps back first. So the first okay. step is create slack. <laughs> You've got to create time. There isn't, you know, every curriculum, every state standards, set of state standards is too full. There's too much in there. 
for sure. And so if you teach it all, it's way too much for most students. So you have to create Slack. And my way of doing this is to say that you have to designate a maximum of 80% of the standards you're going to teach in a semester or a marking period as essential. And at least 20% has to be desirable. Hmm. Then you teach the essential stuff and you do an assessment. And if the students have mastered the essential stuff, then you can do the desirable stuff. If you really want to hand on heart say that you are delivering the standards, you can relegate the, the desirable stuff to homework tasks so that then you can hand on heart say, I did assign this work, your child just didn't do it. So once you've got that Slack, then you have to build in ways of using that Slack. So for a start, I would say, if you take time to write comments on a student's work, the next time those students are in the classroom with you, they should be responding to that feedback. If it's worth your while writing comments on individual students' work, it's worthwhile taking class time for them to respond to that. And that's a, a good way of differentiating. So for example, one history teacher I know, what she does is she writes three questions on each student's work, mm -hmm. where they've got an argument about a historical event, for example. Now, the point is, you could be the smartest kid in the room, you still know you're going to have three questions. It's a different set of questions from your partner, your neighbor, who's less gifted than you. But the, the important point is, you know there'll be follow-up. Mm -hmm. Feedback is, what's next in my learning? Right. The second thing to realize then is that you very quickly reach diminishing returns. So yes, you could actually give comments on every single thing the students do, but that's not a good use of the time. You'd probably be better off spending some of that time planning more effective instruction. So I've proposed something I call four quarters grading or four quarters marking. So 25% of the time that you allocate to grading should be you giving comments on students' work. 25% should be what I call whole class marking. You take in all the students' work, you read through all the students' work, and then you decide what things do I need to go over again in detail with the whole group. Maybe two, three students you need to pick up individually but the idea is you pick up as much as you can at a whole group level. As I say to my uh, pre-service teachers, teaching is interesting because students are so different. It's only possible because they're so similar. Right. And so the idea is most of the students will have the same problems, the same misconceptions. Then 25% peer assessment, 25% self-assessment. I wouldn't mm -hmm. go to the stake on those percentages, but the idea that teachers writing individual comments on students' work is very expensive. It's one-to-one -one tuition, the most expensive form of education we've invented. So the idea is, if you take the time to write the students' comments on students' work, make sure there's time in the classroom to respond to those, but then explore other ways that are more efficient, maybe less effective, but the important thing is the cost-benefit trade-off, and in general, doing a bit less grading, a bit more whole-class grading, bit more peer assessment, a bit more self-assessment would be more beneficial. Yeah. I want to be clear, it's very difficult to do this well because what we know about students is that they often give misleading each advice to each other. Students often think things are correct when they're incorrect. Mm -hmm. But it's a worthy goal. As students get older, we should be trying to get them to be more and more effective in assessing their own and their peers' work because then they're able to apply those same criteria to future pieces of work. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it because I love the the whole notion of synthesizing it to say half our time should have students 
in self and peer assessment situations where the students are at the center and something we talked about last week and something that I talk about a lot, which is helping develop our expertise in assessment is to teach the students to do this for themselves so that they're at the center of that experience. And so I I think that's a, and like you say, we don't have to drill down on those percentages exactly, but it's the idea that half our time it should be. Would you, would you make any adjustments? Again, we're not locking into those percentages, but I'm thinking about what kind of a distinction would you make in terms of a novice learner versus a, a say a, a learner that's approaching proficiency or even mastery with a with a content? Would you would you change that sort of distribution of time if someone was more novice than you were? If you were putting most of your students, for example, in a self assessment or a peer assessment situation, what might a teacher think about when it comes to more novice learners at that moment? I I have difficulty with a novice expert distinction as applied to regular whole class instruction okay. because if the, if the student's time is being well used, the focus of what's going on should be something where they're a novice. Right. So, so yes, some students might be further ahead than others on this particular task, in which case don't spend time on that task, work out what's next for those students. So right. I, would, I would always be wanting to move students to where they're a rel- relative novice. Okay. Um, in terms of the content, because I'm trying to push them f- further forward. Yeah. So it, it's looking for kind of what I call inclusive differentiation, yeah. the idea of the same task being given to students, but where, and, and it's not just, you know, not just write an essay about what you did on your vacation, which is kind of <laughs> copping out, but finding yes. ways of making it more challenging for some students because they can cope with it. So the idea of teachers adjusting the difficulty of the task by negotiation, by discussion, by probing, by pushing with the students. That's a really good point. I think the idea of having all students at, at a level of, at a novice level based on where they are in their learning is a, is a great perspective on that for sure. So speaking of the students, let's shift now and talk about the students. Um, from where I sit, and certainly I've, and listeners, you've heard me say this many times on the podcast, and I know, Dylan, you've talked about this as well. I think getting students to talk to each other about their learning is one of the most underutilized uh, assessment for learning strategies that we have. Um, would you agree with that? And if so, how, how do we help? What are some ways we can help teachers understand the power of engineering conversations in the classroom and how that evidence really helps us, uh, you know, make instructional decisions, help learners see where, what others are thinking, help them move along that trajectory. It, it, it on one level is so simple how do we get kids talking to each other about their learning? And yet it still seems to be underutilized in classrooms. I don't know if you subscribe to that or not, but that's from my view. It seems to be one of those strategies that gets underserved in the classroom, but has such a powerful impact on learning. I agree it's under, underused. Okay. I don't think it's simple. Okay. So Simple I'm, in concept I'm, or the idea. Let's, let's get into the complexities then. <laughs> so I think teachers, many teachers, are rightfully cautious about this. And the best illustration of this is the work of Graham Nuttall in New Zealand. And he just did this extraordinarily detailed tape recording of conversations of students working in groups, and they had a microphone on each table, and they, these conversations were, were recorded and transcribed. And I'm going to characterize this in a very crude way, but basically 50% of what kids learned, they learned from their peers rather than from the teacher, and 50% of that was incorrect. So teachers are rightly concerned that bad collaborative learning is really bad. It is is worse than teachers standing at the front front and droning on. 
So fortunately, we now have some quite good research evidence about when it's effective. Mm -hmm. And so you've got the work of uh, the late Robert, Robert Slavin, who suggests that there are two things that need to be present, which is group goals. Students are working as a group, not just in a group. Right. And each individual member of the group needs to be accountable to the group for putting forward their best learning efforts, which must be visible to the others. We get that in the orchestra. One student playing a wrong note because they didn't practice harms the whole performance group goal. Right. And everybody knows who played the wrong note, individual accountability. Yeah. The problem is teachers often set up collaborative tasks in the classroom in a way that two or three students can do the work for the whole group. So the second problem is teachers often focus the work on the best product or the best outcome. For me, effective cooperative learning, the goal is the maximum learning for, for each member of the group, not just the best average learning, certainly not the best artifact produced. It has to be the case that every single student in the group learns. And I think that's the really crucial thing is that teachers need to, you know, and teachers should encourage students to learn, to talk, but you need to be monitoring the quality of those conversations to make sure that students aren't misleading each other, because we know because of the, what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, we know that, that the less you know about something, the more likely you are to overstate your level of knowledge. <laughs> and we are, see very um, unknowledgeable students giving confident, incorrect advice to others. Right. So you need to be monitoring that uh, constantly. And also, even when it's correct, it can be unhelpful. So again, this is Bob Slavin's work. And uh, what they found is that when students gave each other support in the form of elaborated explanations, that was usually positive for the, the recipient, but not where it was just giving them the correct answers. Mm -hmm. That leads to a second feature of effective group work, which is the work of the Johnson brothers about how you need to talk about this as a process. So what are we going to do when we're supporting each other? Are we going to give them answers or are we going to try to help them understand this stuff? And so actually having a sort of meta conversation about how you work in a group, reflecting how well did we work as a group? And yeah. one extreme version of this is a version, is a technique used by Roberto Baldino, a mathematics educator in Brazil, where students are assigned to work in groups of four, the, work, the groups are changed every week, but the group of four works on a chapter of a textbook, of a math textbook. And when they think they're ready, they tell the teacher, and each member of the group is tested on the content of that chapter. And each member of the group is awarded the score of the lowest scoring member of the group. Right. Now, that's not a very good assessment of what each, each student learned, but it's a very good way to make sure that everybody takes everybody else's learning seriously. Right. So I wouldn't report that to parents. I wouldn't grade it. But by saying, you know, basically, the variation in achievement in this group is too great. You could actually even use a standard deviation if you wanted to. You could say, well, some of you did very well. The other way I've seen this done is by teachers posting up a stem and leaf plot of the scores in a test for the whole class. Hmm. How are we going to make sure that the whole class does better next time? The idea that students take each other's learning seriously. So I think that's, that's the really important point, is right. that the focus is very clearly on making sure that everybody learns this. It's not just the best artifact. It's not even the, you know, the, the best average amount of learning. It is mm -hmm. the, the smallest variation of the learning across the class. Right. We, 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 that, we, um, 
Yeah. That 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 leads me to think about um, you know this this focus on collaboration and twenty first century skills. You think about teaching kids how to collaborate, how to you know come to consensus, how to help support one another, responsible for group results as opposed to just yeah. I got mine and I I got that achievement going. That uh, and I appreciate the correction. I think what I, if I would have been more expansive, I would have said it's simple conceptually, but it's complex yes. in execution. Right? It's exactly. the idea that getting kids to talk about each other is simple conceptually, but certainly we have. To be sharp with our prompts, we have to monitor the quality of those conversations. We have to make sure they're actually being effective in terms of improving learning. So there's a lot of moving parts to it for sure. So I appreciate that uh, that correction <laughs> as we as I as I tried to present it in an oversimplified way as somebody who's been railing against oversimplification for most of our conversation. Um, the other question I want to ask you about just to dig into because I think it's such a it's a strategy I've used in my own teaching uh, years ago, and it's a strategy that I think uh, many teachers have an effective impact with in their classrooms, but still a little underutilized at times by other teachers. And that is the hinge question, the hinge point question. Um, so when it comes to, you know, these questions that we ask at pivotal moments, kind of mid-lesson to gauge where students are, for you, uh, just to highlight for for listeners, what are some of the keys to developing an effective hinge question? Well, typically they work best in situations where we know that misconceptions are likely. Okay. So often you can actually develop these by looking at lists of misconceptions. So there are databases of student misconceptions in math and in science, and you can actually start from that. You then write the question, and I would suggest multiple choice questions. Yeah. People say, well, why multiple choice? Because well, it makes the teacher's job easier. Reading 25 mini whiteboards is challenging. Just looking at the A's, B's, C's, and D's is much easier when you look around. So multiple choice questions where the incorrect answers relate to well-known misconceptions. How do you generate these questions? My advice, ask them as an exit ticket. Ask them as a constructed response question and then take the most interesting incorrect answers, tidy them up the language a little bit maybe, and then use those as options in a multiple choice question. Hmm. Um, then try it out as a multiple choice question, but then ask students why they chose that option. So this is part of the development process, because you can then tell whether the, the question is functioning in the way intended. Did the student choose this because they had this misconception? So let me give you a couple of examples. Yeah. A very simple one in um, middle school science. Would your mass be the same on the moon? So if you ask students, would your weight be the same on the moon? They get it right because they've seen videos of astronauts bouncing around the moon's surface. So they know that the weight is different but they haven't understood the difference between mass and weight. So they think your mass would also be different on the moon. In elementary school math, which is bigger, 0.25 or 0.3? Worth asking, because many children ignore the decimal point and conclude that 0.25 is bigger than 0.3 because 25 is bigger than three. So it's having a stock of these kinds of questions that you can ask that elicit evidence of misconceptions. Now. More experienced teachers will have all of these at their fingertips. They, you know, right. Any moment is a hinge point in a lesson for, that, for those teachers because they can just pull out a question from them, experience, and just ask that question straight away. For the novice, I suggest we script it. So when we plan our lessons, we plan at least one hinge point into the lesson. At this point in the lesson, I'm going to check the students are with me. I'm going to ask it in multiple choice format. I'm going to get a response from every single student. I'm not going to use any technology. I'm going to use ABCD cards 
or one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D. Why? Because if we want to create a classroom where students feel okay about making mistakes, the last thing we should do is record every single one of them. Right. So, you know, the great thing about mini whiteboards, about finger voting, is that once your hands are down, there's no evidence you got it wrong. Nobody's captured that information. Whereas, you know, if, if you capture this with an electronic clicker, then, you know, it, it's just recorded in an Excel spreadsheet forever. So it just feels much more threatening. The other thing that I like about ABCD cards or even finger voting is you can have multiple correct answers. Right. So, you know, we've got uh, five kinds of figurative language we've been using. Preservation, uh, hyperbole, onomatopoeia, personification, simile. He honked his horn at the cyclist. I hope that most students realize there was automatopoeia there. Honk. Mm -hmm. Three. Mm -hmm. yeah. But some students will also realize there was alliteration. He honked his horn. And I was a bit sneaky there because I didn't emphasize the alliteration. I said, mm -hmm. he honked his horn. So I made it a bit more subtle to provide that differentiation so that some students um, aren't noticing it. And, and so you have make a decision, you know, is it important that some students missed part of the subtlety of this question? Maybe yes, maybe no. But the important point is you are planning to check on the student's progress in the lesson at a time when you can do something with it and make it and just immediately take a follow up remedial action. That's the idea of a hinge point question. It's, yeah. it's pre-planned. It's typically in the middle of a lesson and you actually have plan B ready if you find out that plan A is not the way to go. Right. And based on the misunderstandings and misconceptions, yeah. we, we make those instructional adjustments. Two things you, you said really caught my attention. One, I never drew the line between an exit ticket and developing a hinge question. I love that idea mm -hmm. of taking their answers and realizing what their, what their misunderstandings are and then repurposing those into a hinge question. And the other part about, you know, I know so many teachers nowadays are caught up in, uh, you know, programs like um, Kahoot, and other electronic devices. And I'd never really connected the dots between this sort of uh, what some would see as old school um, ABC note cards or finger voting, but the connection between that and the idea of self and peer assessment, especially peer assessment, where you're building a classroom culture where it's okay to be wrong publicly yeah. and it's okay to be, and to feel supported in that environment that if you do things in private and you're right, it, it records it on the spreadsheet and teachers will say, yeah, but I can go look at how the student did. I said, but there's a time delay between you knowing that information and being able to make your instructional decision, that time delay is problematic. Now, I guess multiple choice wouldn't work all the time. Do you do you subscribe to the idea that there there's a, I guess, a limit or a shelf life to a hinge question versus as you're getting into more complex thinking? Or do you feel that you can develop a hinge question at, at any level of complexity? Yeah, I do. So do. I, I use them in my master's teaching and in my PhD teaching. Um, so, for example, when I do a course on the psychology of learning, I give them a chapter on the distinction between Piaget and Vygotsky's thinking about learning. Okay. They know that the next session, there's going to be a multiple choice question on which of these is the most important distinction between Piaget and Vygotsky. Okay. One of them is Piaget believed in levels of development and Vygotsky didn't. That's wrong. Uh, Piaget believed in equilibration and Vygotsky believed in cultural historical activity theory. That's also wrong, but it's the kind of headline they might have picked up. So that has two purposes. One is to give me information about where their thinking is. But secondly, it's a really great way of making sure that students have done the reading. 
-hmm. The fact that they know that, and and this actually solves a lot of problems we're going to have with chat GPT. We don't want students to bring back written assignments because we don't know, it could be chat GPT, it could be an older brother or sister or a parent doing the work. But when they know that mastery of this chapter is going to be probed with a multiple choice question, you know, four options, but they're, you know, a a sentence long and quite subtle in terms of the distinctions. Mm -hmm. That, I think, gets people to focus. And I, I use the same thing when I'm teaching null hypothesis significance testing. You know, what does it mean to say that a that result is significant P less than 0.05? And again, I've got you know, four questions there. Typically, students get that wrong. Many textbooks get that wrong, in fact, because it's very subtle. So, it's, it, so yes, there's always a trade-off here. You could always get better, more sophisticated information by interviewing, by dialoguing, by giving students an oral examination, in effect. But the question for me is not, is that evidence from the multiple choice question perfect? No, it's not. Is it a good trade-off in terms of time? Usually, yes. So, you know, the important point in education improvement is opportunity cost. Every minute we spend on something is a minute we don't have to spend on something else. And I think multiple choice questions, just in terms of the rapidity with which teachers can process the results, actually uh, lend themselves to really highly effective practice much more so. And, and the other thing, I, I, hope I, I haven't mentioned this, but I hope it's clear from the questions I've shown so far. People say you can't assess higher order thinking with multiple choice questions. That is simply not correct. You can assess higher order thinking. It's a bit more challenging, that's all. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important point to make there is that that the questions have to be of high quality. I think too often, and I don't want to cast everybody as as uh, sort of a single monolith, as I've said many times before, but certainly we look at multiple choice. The advantage of multiple choice is the ease and quickness with which you can score it. But the time and attention it takes to craft a good question is something that sometimes gets lost. So we might look at the back end and say, well, multiple choice is easier to identify, you know, A, B, C, D. It's easier for me to process where the collective is think- what the collective is thinking, what the individuals are thinking. But that question has to be a good question. If you're going to assess higher level thinking skills, we have to take the time to craft a question that really does get to that. Because I think if we if we shortcut that, we may end up having a poor question. So, I, But I agree with you. I think you can use multiple choice. It's, it's something that I think because standardized tests often use multiple choice, it's a, it's a format that people rail against simply because they want to be counter to what the standardized test. But it's a valid assessment method that really can help uh, instructionally help gauge learning. Um, I, I'm with you on that for well, sure. But one more point I think is really important here. Yeah. I think multiple choice questions should be used in classrooms and not in standardized tests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got it precisely the wrong way around. I think we need more constructed response questions right. in standardized tests. And mm-hmm. with the development of automated scoring, pretty soon now we're going to have students able to write textual answers and have the machine right. score it as accurately as humans. Actually, we already have that. We already have machines scoring essays as accurately as humans, which sounds impressive until you find out how bad humans are at this. So <laughs> I, I think that That's right. It's, it's not good. It's like yeah. walking on its hind legs. You know, it's amazing <laughs> that it's done at all. But yeah, so I, I think that for, sure. for me, uh, we need more constructive response in our high stakes standardized tests right. and more multiple choice in our classrooms, just because it makes the teacher's data processing task easier. Yeah, it would be um, 
again, one of those simple and complex ideas of having more constructive response, more performance tasks, et cetera, getting to deeper demonstrations on standardized testing. We, I guess we've got it backwards and uh, hopefully we can rectify that. One more thing. Um, I want to, oh yeah, go ahead. One more thing. You mentioned performance tasks. Yeah. The problem with performance tasks, which people don't realize, is that they're highly unreliable. Mm. So there's some nice work, both at high school level and even in medical licensure, that shows, there's a nice study by Brian Clauser and his colleagues, where doctors were given, or trainee doctors were given uh, patient cases to manage. So you decide what tests to run, what the patient right. says, and then you manage the patient. What they discovered was that how hard the task you were given was almost irrelevant. How good you were as a doctor was almost irrelevant. Who did the scoring was irrelevant. What matters was how lucky you were in the particular case you were asked to deal with. Interesting. It's called the person-task interaction effect. So, so basically, if it's something that you've happened to have come across within the last week, you'll do well. If it's something you last saw three months ago, you might do more badly. Yeah. It's, not that it's, it's not that the task is hard, it's just not a good fit for you at this moment. Right. And what people don't understand is that when people use more authentic forms of assessment, performance assessments, they make the results of each individual less reliable, unless you're getting a large number of these performance assessments, typically six, which takes up a huge amount of time that would be better off being spent on instruction. Right. So, so basically, we have to understand that there's, there's no quick wins here. There are only trade-offs. And anybody who advocates performance assessment without understanding those interaction effects I think mm -hmm. is just arguing for students' results to be less reliable, which I think is problematic. Yeah, it is problematic. Now, let me just probe that a little bit more in thinking about, say, um, from a from a district or a state level, would yep. you be in alignment with the idea that if we, we might not be able to have reliability in terms of the individual student and the consistency across individuals, but if we engaged in performance tasks and constructive response questions, from a district or a state level, do you think that you could look at trends that way and, Absolutely. and, and not drill it down to the classroom, but use it in that more effective manner? Absolutely. But then I take it yeah. one step further. Okay. I would actually have different classes doing different performance tasks. Okay. And the idea is that across the district, the performance tasks exhaust the entire domain that we're interested in. The teacher doesn't know which task their kids is go are going to get. Right. So the only way that the teacher can teach the test is to teach everybody everything. Right. And that's what we want. So I think right. if we give up this idea of assigning the individual scores to individual students, mm -hmm. and instead getting an envelope of scores that says, here's how good our students are at this particular thing, I think we could make huge progress. And if you wanted to, then you could actually tie that to teacher's grades so that you can actually tell the teacher, in this class, you've got six kids who are proficient, 10 kids who are advanced, three kids who are basic, two kids who are below basic. You decide who they are on the basis of your classwork grades, but the envelope is defined by the score of those students on that standardized task taken by every student in the district. Yeah, there's there's just so many opportunities yeah. there that we're missing right now in terms of what large-scale assessment could, could provide to us in terms of system decisions yeah. and, and teacher growth and all of that. And we just seem to want to drill it down to the classroom and the idea of accountability and and, and connecting it to funding and teacher evaluation and all those things that really do be, beating up teachers and schools with the data, just so unhelpful in terms of what, what it could be. So mm -hmm. um, interesting perspective on that. Okay. So let's finish up part one. I want to turn the spotlight on you and give you a chance.
chance to sort of talk about what's next for you. What are you working on? Uh, what What's kind of piqued your curiosity lately? What can listeners look forward to from Dylan William in the future? Scale. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm now less interested in doing, I probably won't do any more research ever again. I'm 67. I've retired formally from university life. I'll still, I'll still do commentaries on in peer reviewed journals and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm now much more concerned about how do we change 2 million classrooms in the US. Mm-hmm. And there are far too many researchers working on little boutique projects um, that will we'll, we'll work with a dozen classrooms. And you know, we understand what's happening in those classrooms. That's a search for knowledge. I'm interested in a search for transformative change. And so I want to see how to move a system. And that, that's my, my big focus. It's partly advocacy. It's partly designing things in the right way. So one of the things I've become clear about is no educational innovation can be implemented in a classroom in the way intended by its inventor. We have this idea of what classrooms should look like, and it never looks like that when you have to invent it in real classrooms. Lawrence Stenhouse um, had this wonderful phrase, most educational reforms treat teachers as intellectual navvies day laborers who are told where to dig, but not why. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you, if you tell teachers what to do, but don't tell them why they're doing it, then when they have to make adjustments to make it work in their particular context, and they always do, they may make the wrong adjustments. They may make what Ed Hartle calls lethal mutations, mm-hmm. like teachers being told to use popsicle sticks to pick kids at random, but then forgetting to replace the sticks. <laughs> So now a kid is off the hook for the next 29 questions. So, so for me, it's about scale, but it's about scale in a way that's smart. And it's not telling what teachers to do, it's, it's to create frameworks within which teachers can move forward productively. And so my, my view of lead, the role of leadership is to help teachers become more effective in their classrooms by constraining that towards the things that are likely to have most, most impact. In the North America right now, we have a kind of odd belief that teacher professional development must be focused on subject-specific practices. Mm-hmm. And there's very little evidence that supports that. And here's the real problem. If you teach teachers how to teach a particular topic more effectively, you'll improve the teaching of that topic, maybe, but nothing else. So that's right. why I think we have to be focusing on pedagogy. Right. The fact is yeah. that pedagogy transcends content and therefore mm-hmm. teach a teacher to how to give more wait time, make statements rather yeah. than asking questions, getting responses from every single kid rather than just the usual suspect. Right. They can use right. that in every single class that they teach. And so thinking about designing systems that can be implemented everywhere with adjustments, with modifications, sure, but with a, a spine, if you like, that keeps people doing things that are likely to be effective so we don't get the, the, the lethal mutations. That's what I'm currently right. trying to work on. Yeah. You remind me, I think this is a Dylan Williamism. Uh, I think I've heard you say many times that uh, a poor curriculum taught well is better for kids than a great curriculum taught poorly. Is that is that you? Is that something I can attribute well, to? something I said, but it was actually in the context of a much longer quote. And so therefore, okay. it, 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 it isn't true if you define okay. curriculum in a particular way. So the, the trouble is in the United States, okay. the term curriculum is often used to re- mean textbooks. Right, that's fair. And so for them, curriculum is part of pedagogy, but mm-hmm. 
if you think of curriculum as being the lived experience of young people in classrooms, then pedagogy is part of curriculum. Yeah. So, so I, I think that it, it, it is correct in one reading of the term curriculum, it's incorrect in the others. But the important point okay. is that what students take away with, from, from a lesson, is, uh, what I'm saying is two, different, two teachers with the same textbooks, the same curriculum in that sense, mm-hmm. can give our students completely different experiences. Yeah. One is demeaning and stultifying, one is engaging and exciting. It's the same curriculum in terms of the same textbooks, but it's how the teacher uses those textbooks, whether the teacher explores alternative answers in math, for example, rather than saying there's only one correct answer. All those things could happen with the same curriculum if curriculum means textbooks. Yeah, there's always there's always nuance. There's always specificity and things where you have to consider on all angles. Uh, fascinating conversation, Dylan. Uh, I could I could continue for another few hours uh, and never get tired of uh, the insights and, and uh, expertise that you bring to these conversations. But we are going to finish part two with a much lighter question. Um, and this is really self-serving on my part, because as I travel around, I like to learn about where are the best places to eat and where the great restaurants are. And you, of course, live in, if I'm pronouncing this right, Stark, Florida. Is that yeah. is that right? Is that correct? So you li- I love food. You live in Stark, Florida. So if I were to ask you whether it's a hole in the wall, whether it's a nice restaurant, doesn't matter. But where's the best place to eat in Stark, Florida? It's in Cole Street, and it's called okay. Thai, I think it changed its name, either from or to Tip Thai or Thai Elegance. So it's a Thai restaurant. Okay. And Stark is very small, and I think it's got about a population of 15,000 people, so we don't have that many restaurants. Right. But the, the Thai restaurant on Cole Street is definitely the place I would recommend. Excellent. Any uh, favorite dishes there? Uh, yes. I really like chicken larb. It's a kind of starter with kind of chicken salad, but yeah. with lots of Thai spices on it. Yeah. And then excellent main course, probably um, basil fried rice. Wow. Okay. I'll keep duly noted. Uh, if I'm ever down in Stark, Florida, I will definitely check that out. Listeners, you can. And of course, most of you probably already do. You should follow Dylan uh, on social media. Dylan is on Twitter. The handle is at Dylan William. Uh, Dylan is also on LinkedIn. And you can find Dylan's website, www.dylanwilliam.org. And I'll have links in the show notes for all of those uh, those places, social media, as well as the website. Uh, Dylan, uh, can't thank you enough for joining me these past two weeks. Uh, really appreciate the conversation. Certainly, uh, I continue to be inspired by your work, and I know many listeners are as well. So thank you. Uh, appreciate you, for, uh, you, you uh, doing this this week and last week. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question. Well, it's not so much a listener question as it is a a listener asking for a comment about some comments that were made by Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tom Horn. Now, in an article, Horn is quoted as asking schools to scrap grading systems that start at 50% in the name of equity in various school districts throughout the state of Arizona. And honestly, The idea that someone in charge of public education in any jurisdiction would have so little knowledge about the truth of anything so substantive is quite stunning, actually. Well, it it actually doesn't surprise me that there's so little knowledge. 
I mean, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? So let me tell you about the tweet, the comments, and then I'll add my two cents uh, after. And longtime listeners, you're probably going to be able to predict what I'm going to say based on a number of things I've talked about in the past, but I'm going to say it anyway. So here's the tweet from the Department of Education in Arizona. They were uh, quoting Superintendent Horn, quote, in education today, we have a war between excellence and mediocrity. So-called equitable, compassionate, or standards-based grading promotes mediocrity, end quote. And the tweet goes on to say, Superintendent Horn wants to raise test scores so students can compete in an internationally competitive economy. Like, where do I begin with that ridiculousness? Now, I'm going to talk as if I were speaking to Superintendent Horn. So I'm, I'm going to try to address the comments as if I was talking to him. First of all, no one is promoting mediocrity, and you know it, Superintendent Horn. What you call excellence is likely a veil for elitist. This so-called war between excellence and mediocrity is entirely fake and manufactured by you. So here's my first question to you, Mr. Horn. Are you arguing against equity and compassion? Are you suggesting that grading continue to be riddled with implicit bias that disproportionately impacts some students by race or by socioeconomic status? Are you suggesting a cold-hearted, ruthless approach to student assessment, even though student assessment is a very human, very emotional experience? Now, if, sir, you are conflating compassion with the lowering of expectations, then you might be less informed about assessment than I first thought. I know it sounds clever and smart to use the words so-called in front of ideas you disagree with. So let me try it. This so-called cry for excellence is nothing more than an attempt to marginalize certain groups of students so that some can maintain their power and leverage in society. How about that? Excellence, within the context you're using the term, Mr. Horn, is about as loud a dog whistle as I've heard in a long, long time. Here's my second question for you, Mr. Horn. Are you suggesting the removal of curricular standards? I'm assuming not. So I guess the real question I'm asking is, if teachers in Arizona are teaching to state standards, what exactly is so outrageous about the idea that students' grades be based solely on the achievement of those standards? Why is that the controversy? Standards-based grading means grades are based on the standards. Now, we've had standards for over a generation, but basing grades on those standards is still controversy? Hmm. Now, you mentioned mediocrity. Do you mean the mediocrity that's promoted by traditional grading when students can balance a less than favorable assessment performance by earning some extra credit for something unrelated to the learning outcomes? Are you referring to the mediocrity promoted by traditional grading when students' past performances count against them in perpetuity, even though the student has now reached a level of competence with the learning? Like, if I now know how to add fractions, why does it matter that I used to not know how to do it? Are you referring to the mediocrity promoted by traditional grading when grades for homework can be achieved by copying someone else's answers at lunch or the night before, and then students can pass those answers off as their own the next day, or related to that, are you talking about the mediocrity that's promoted by traditional grading when I get points for the completion of homework assignments, regardless of whether anything was done properly or answered appropriately? Achievement points or scores for completion. That, that can't be your definition of rigor, can it? 
Mr. Horn, are you referring to the mediocrity promoted by traditional grading when we allow a student's behavior to distort their achievement level? Please tell me, Mr. Horn, that you are not in favor of purposefully distorting student achievement levels. I would hope a fundamental principle of assessment that you would subscribe to is that a student's grade should be an accurate reflection of the degree to which the student has met the standards of the class that they're enrolled in, and that we would do everything we could to avoid distorting that achievement level in either direction, right? Lowering my achievement grade because of a behavioral misstep or poor attitude would certainly contribute to inaccurate reporting. Unless, of course, you are of the mindset that validity and reliability don't matter at all. I have a third question for you, Mr. Horn. I'll make this one quick. You say you want to raise test scores. Well, grading has nothing to do with that. Grading has nothing to do with raising achievement. And anyone familiar with any of the assessment research knows there is unanimous agreement in academia that the pathway to raising achievement is through feedback and that we raise achievement through strategies, formative assessment, effective feedback, and we raise achievement through interventions responding to assessment evidence. Grading is neither a strategy or an intervention. It's neither of them. Grading is measurement. An accurate measurement begins with a reliable measure that allows for a valid interpretation of the evidence. If you understood assessment, Mr. Horn, you would know that. Now question four, and I'll finish here. In this recent article on the Center Square website, you were cited as asking schools to scrap grading systems that start at 50% in the name of equity in various school districts throughout the state. Mr. Horn, minimum 50% grading is not about equity. It's about simple mathematics. To be more specific, it's middle school math. Let me cite sixth grade Arizona standards, okay? Six point SP, point B, point 5C. Summarize and describe, giving quantitative measures of center, median, and mean. Translation, sixth grade standards are mean and median, measures of central tendency. If you want to outlaw 50% minimum grading, then you have to outlaw any mean averaging because every sixth grade student learns that extreme scores annihilate the mean. So the 50% is designed primarily to prevent teachers' grade books from being mathematically invalid. But again, if you don't care about accurately reporting student achievement, then sure, do whatever you want in the grade book. Now, you must have, since you've specifically targeted this practice of minimum 50 grading, you must have at least familiarized yourself with the educational researcher August-September 2012 article written by Theodore Carey and James Carafio. That article was called The Minimum Grading Controversy, The Results of a Quantitative Study of Seven Years of Grading Data from an Urban High School. It was a seven-year study from one school where minimum grading had been implemented to better evaluate the competing claims. These competing claims were that some argued that struggling students were given a reasonable opportunity to recover from failure, whereas critics said minimum 50 grading produces or induces, I should say, grade inflation and social promotion. Now, because I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the article, I'll just remind you of the summary that in the statistical analysis in that research, uh, it revealed no evidence that minimum grading was inducing either grade inflation or social promotion. Now, I, I understand, Mr. Horn, it is tough when the research doesn't support our assertions or our narrative. 
And I do recognize that this is just one study, which is fair, but it feels like one more study than you're citing. I'm just saying. None of this is new. We all know what this really is. Only those on top or in elite positions fight against ideas like equity and compassion. As the expression goes, when you've been on top for so long, equity feels like a loss. No one doing the work of grading reform with any kind of seriousness is talking about lowering expectations or moving away from excellence. That might be a convenient narrative for you, Mr. Horn, but it lacks any kind of credibility. To suggest that standards-based grading is antithetical to excellence is either a calculated mischaracterization of the truth or a willful act of ignorance, neither of which should be acceptable from a person in your position. If you're going to comment about assessment and grading, please familiarize yourself with the most basic research associated with it, or at least talk to someone who has that expertise. What this really is, is, is an exposure of the truth behind this this whole assertion. This really exposes that some who say all don't really mean all. Those who have most benefited from the traditional system will do anything to maintain the imbalance that secures their privileged position within the system. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the pod, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you've got suggestions or any feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events I mentioned in today's opening. Now, we are heading into the summer, as I mentioned, so the schedule might be a little bit more sporadic, but I will have at least six episodes for the next three months. So for June, July, August, we'll have at least six episodes before we get back into the regular routine come September. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.